Hello, we're back once again with Evangelion, interpreting scripture and life, and we find ourselves at the beginning of Galatians chapter 5. It's very difficult to unstitch the issues in Galatians without from the outset explaining that the letter has at its heart the question of whether Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be counted amongst the people of God. Yet here we are in chapter 5 of the letter, and this is the first mention of circumcision. Now, as is abundantly clear from Paul's writing here, the issue of circumcision is one which Paul takes with dearth seriousness. We might be tempted in considering these passages to think of Luke's report at the beginning of Acts 16, where Paul circumcised Timothy. According to Luke, he did so to placate the local Jews because Timothy's father was Greek. Later on in Acts, in Acts 21, Paul engages in a Nazarite vow involving head shaving and fasting to offset rumours regarding his laxity towards the Torah. Now, These moves reported by Luke may seem somewhat out of place given the context of Galatians. Yet, as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 9, his missionary strategy is one that's often described as psychagogic adaptability. That is, he adopts whatever lifestyle is commensurate to winning people for Christ within certain constraints, of course. What Paul would fervently deny, and which Luke's reports don't contradict, is that the Torah had in any way the capacity to save. Here's what Paul writes in Galatians 5, verses 1 through 12. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wished that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. The position that Paul takes here is clearly one with very far-reaching implications. Galatians 5.3 makes quite clear that circumcision was indicative of wholesale devotion to the law of Moses. It's not as if one could be circumcised and not embrace the other demands of the Jewish law. The issues that Paul was facing were ostensibly issues of identity. The so-called works of the law that we've read about, which in Galatians relate to those aspects of Jewish law which mark off Jews from Gentiles, things like kosher law, Sabbath observance, and of course circumcision, each in their own right represented Jewish identity. So for example, the issue at the Antioch meal table debacle that we looked at in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, strictly speaking, was eating practices. Now there's no law, nowhere in the Torah does it 
prohibit Jews and Gentiles from eating together. And yet it was seemingly a well-known cultural taboo. The Jewish writer Josephus seemed reluctant to engage in any practices that might involve too much contact with Gentiles, as he suggests in his work against Appian 2.258. And even pagan writers were aware of this taboo as well, as the Roman historian Tacitus notes in his book History in chapter 5 verse 5. So when James' colleagues turn up in Antioch and influence Peter to behave in ways that he had not previously, Paul accused him of, quote, trying to force the Gentiles to live like Jews, Galatians 2 verse 14. Now, it's not in my view that the contingent from James would have wanted to force circumcision on the Galatian Gentiles, but they certainly didn't want Jews and Gentile believers eating together. Once more, the issue in Antioch was ultimately identity. In my understanding, the issue was this. Where does one's primary identity lie? If Jewish and Gentile Christians couldn't eat together, as in Galatians 2.11 through 14, or Gentiles felt the need to be circumcised, as we see here in Galatians 5, then Paul's concern would be that believers saw their primary identity in their ethno-racial categorization and only secondarily in Christ. In other words, for these Jewish believers, they were Jews first and in Christ second. And this for Paul was the unforgivable crime. For Paul, one's primary identity was in Christ and only secondarily did anything else matter. And it's for this reason, in my view, that the language that Paul uses in Galatians 5 is so strong. This is the yoke of slavery which Paul is so adamant that the Gentiles don't re-entangle themselves with in Galatians 5 verse 1. They're now free because they've discovered their true identity in Christ. And as he mentions in Galatians 3.28, they're now unencumbered by the kind of binary divisions which the broader society holds so close to, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave or free. It's for this reason that in Galatians 5.2, Paul says that if anyone is circumcised, then Christ is of no benefit to them. Because once they get circumcised, they're effectively acknowledging that being in Christ is insufficient and must be augmented with Jewish ethnic identity. And it's this that Paul will have none of. To be justified by law is to attempt to establish one's right standing before God on the basis of Jewish ethnic identity. And hence, Paul says in verse 4 that any attempt at so doing is to cut oneself off from Christ. It is to fall from grace. And this phrase, fall from grace, ought to be understood in conjunction with Galatians 2.21, where Paul writes that if righteousness before God could be achieved by observing Jewish legal demands, then the crucifixion of Jesus itself was superfluous. Galatians 5, 5 and 6 operate in tandem to make this point even clearer. We've learned that the Spirit is the one who mediates the risen life energy of Christ into the believer. That's what justification is. And therefore, it's through the Spirit that we wait for the hope of righteousness. That is ultimate salvation. That is being ultimately right in the eyes of God. And we wait for that on the basis of faith, because it's through faith that we receive the Spirit in the first place. Remember, that was the conclusion of the interrogation in Galatians 3, 1 to 6. And once made alive, the believer is in Christ, at which point whether one is circumcised or uncircumcised is absolutely immaterial. And this may seem shocking to, to listeners, 
But of course, for Paul, the issue was being in Christ. It's not that being circumcised was superior or being uncircumcised was superior. In Christ, both were irrelevant because it's Christ through the Spirit who identifies us. All that matters, he says now, is faith working through love. I know that normally people reading this text think about our faith being manifested in our own works of love, and there may well be some truth to that. I think, though, what we see here is an echo of Galatians 2 verse 20, where Paul says that Jesus loved him and gave himself up on Paul's behalf. Our faith works in tandem with the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. It's our faith working in the context of Christ's love. This notion of marginalising both circumcision and uncircumcision actually reappears in Galatians 6 verse 5, in a passage which actually is very closely connected with this one and ought to be understood in conjunction with it. But we'll revisit that connection when we come to Galatians 6. The truth that Paul refers to in Galatians 5-7 is the truth of the gospel, which we already know from chapter 2 verses 5 and 14 refer to the absence of any kind of ethnic hierarchy for those who are in Christ. It's this truth that Paul questions when he asks, who hindered you? You were running so well. Now, interestingly, the Greek word translated hindered is the word enkopto, which literally means to cut in on. There's no doubt a Pauline double entendre here. The false teachers were cutting in on the Galatian Gentiles' walk with God by trying to get them to cut their foreskins. Interestingly, it seems that Paul is no stranger to the idea of preaching circumcision. According to Galatians 5.11, Paul himself engaged in some kind of circumcision preaching ministry in his past. Now, there is some scholarly debate as to whether he was preaching circumcision to Gentiles or whether he was encouraging Jews not to become lax about the practice of circumcision. My own view is that it's probably the former. There probably was a time when Paul was uh, trying to preach circumcision to Gentiles. That may well have been his way of trying to bring Gentiles into the people of God. On this point, um, I firmly agree with the likes of Daniel Boyarin in that Paul was already reflecting on these questions of the identity of God's people long before his association with the Jesus movement. In my own view, the issues in Galatia were merely a catalyst. They were a flashpoint, bringing to light deep underlying concerns in how God's plan was unfolding amongst mixed believing communities. If all the nations were going to be blessed in Abraham, then what would that look like and what would it mean practically? Galatians 5.11 also suggests that preaching circumcision meant avoiding persecution. Now, presumably, this is persecution either from the synagogue or from very conservative Jewish believers, a point that Paul will return to in Galatians 6.12. However, Paul is no longer preaching circumcision, but rather preaching the cross, and this is why Paul is being persecuted. To preach the cross means to preach that to be in right relation to God, to be justified before God, requires his act of grace demonstrated through the crucifixion of Jesus. However, a crucified Messiah remained a stumbling block and an offence in Jewish thought, and once more Paul will have none of it. Even though he clearly doesn't know these false teachers personally, according to Galatians 5.10, He's conscious that their teaching could spread, as per the yeast metaphor in verse 9. Paul summarises his utter contempt 
for any attempt to be in right relation to God on the basis of ethnic identity in this ghastly statement he makes in Galatians 5.12. If circumcision was really so important to these false teachers, he bids them to go the whole hog and lop their entire manhood off. Once more, to our sensitive Western ears, Paul's abrasive and aggressive tone and extreme language may seem obtuse. Yet both in his own context and his hours, his banded hours, his fury isn't totally without warrant. If Jewish identity was somehow important for being in right relation to God, then the gospel had been utterly compromised. Suddenly it didn't all depend on Jesus's act of crucifixion, a demonstration of divine grace. This was simply a battle that Paul could not afford to lose. In our own day, issues of identity, and particularly ethno-racial identity, gender identity and class identity, remain very sensitive and problematic both for the life of the church and for the broader society. To this day, there are parts of the world where there is great wealth disparity, even within churches. This disparity in wealth is often exacerbated insofar as the rich members of the church are sometimes clergy and pastors who claim that financial security can come as a blessing for making cash donations to the church. There is no age in the church's history where women have not been second-class citizens, and this is very much to our shame. And it will be a permanent scar on the church's historical legacy that the enslavement of African people and the imperial domination of the West in all of Africa was often justified by using the Bible. Indeed, many slave owners themselves were pastors and clergymen. Now, whilst I think it would be remiss of me to trivialise other aspects of human identity, I think if as believers we understood our primary identity as being in Christ and everything else, our ethnic identity, gender identity or social class, as secondary, it would make it much easier to have sensitive discussions about these things in the church. It would also prevent us from seeing prejudice, domination and exploitation as ethnic problems, women's problems or poor people's problems. These are ostensibly human problems and as God's people we have a responsibility to resist, fight against and deconstruct all forms of domination and superiority. Whether that means standing up for people who are being bullied or marginalised in a local context at your workplace or your place of study, or using our votes to keep out extremists in broader community contexts. If we are the people of God, then we are Jesus people, before we are black people, white people, before we're men, women, before we are uh, rich, poor, middle class, upper class or anything else. And if we are Jesus people, we know that the only meaningful hierarchy that exists is God right at the top and the rest of us equally below him.